to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word to our hearts and our souls. And our ultimate joy for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, help me teach this morning. Uh, difficult passage, a difficult idea to, to, to get over, that we would not misread what you have given here. So to that end, Lord, help me, help us here, and above all, Lord, move our hearts to adore, to revel, to rest all the more in your Son, our Savior, the one who saves us and not we ourselves, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay, so this is the second week we're in this passage. Last week, what we saw was that this is a sober warning to people like us. Sitting here this morning, on a Sunday morning, in a church service, people who belong to the body of Christ. We have all these privileges of what we call church life. And so we saw that people can have all of that and then have as their ultimate end, quote, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Okay, so last week I purposefully did not deal with the most difficult theological word in the passage. The word sanctification, right there in verse 29. For he, this person, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And then after church, someone broached that with me. And then on Wednesday night, 
Y'all broached that, which is an awesome thing. It means you read your Bible very carefully, like, wait a minute. What does that mean? How could that be? So, here's the question, and that's why we're back here this week. What does the writer mean by these people who, who will be lost, condemned in the end, at the judgment, with the fury of fire? What does he mean that they were, past tense, sanctified by the blood? All right, so to do that, we're going to wait until I unfold what I think it means, because when I did a, a dive on what is the history of the interpretation of, of this text in the word sanctified, and so I'm going to give you four options that are not my own to start with, to, so you can see how others within the church have, and still do, interpret this and then we'll come to mind. So, first, some take this to mean, and it fits right with their theology, those who believe it is actually very possible to be a real Christian born again in Christ, raised with Him, etc., and then subsequently lose your salvation. So they say, no problem. It's all it's talking about. True Christians really came to saving faith. If they would have died at that moment, they would have gone to heaven, but they lived longer, and down the road, they became this person, and they lost the salvation that they once actually did have. Because it says, these apostates who once believed once affirmed, once confessed, said yes to the baptismal formula, says they have been sanctified. But now, they're lost. Okay, I don't buy it. It's just simply because the rest of the Bible all over the place contradicts that idea that you could truly be in Christ, truly have saving faith and thus be justified by that faith, and then subsequently lose that salvation. Does no. So, I mean, and, and we deal with that every time it comes up in Scripture, so I'm not going to do that. It's just, I mean, if you take Romans 8, for whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he glorified in the resurrection, it's all one ball of wax. So, that's the first, I don't think it works. Then, this text has also been interpreted by those whom, yes, my opinion, I would say it this way, those who have an unbiblical view of eternal security. Because I think there's a biblical view of eternal security. And they say this text, it refers to genuine believers who renounce Christ. They do. They, 
They're an apostate. But the punishment described in this passage is not eternal or it's not hell. It's not eternal separation from God's mercy and goodness. It is only a temporal judgment. Now, those who hold this, like one of the main leaders in the 20th century, was Zane Hodges, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, which was the bedrock of what is known as dispensationalism. It's what came to be known as, because of the 1980s in particular, the non-lordship salvation. And where I think they go wrong is in their idea of what saving faith is. It, if you have enough knowledge, we saw that in the text this week, you got a full knowledge. Okay, here's the gospel. And you, we have a mind, you agree with that. You're saved. That's saving faith. And so that person, you get them to say a prayer, to ask Jesus into their heart, they're saved. Even though some of them may never have any transforming work going on from the inside out. In other words, even though many of them may never be discipled. May, may never be in the process of Holy Spirit sanctification in their lives. Jesus is their Savior. He just has not ever become their Lord. So in this view, a person who made that profession of faith can subsequently deny the faith altogether. I mean, I've read these things over the years from their own writings. So this is not an overstatement. They can deny the faith altogether, but they cannot be unsaved. They are saved. They will just lose rewards. All right, that's view two. I just, look, in the text is very clear. There is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So limiting that to a temporal judgment, I don't think does justice to the text. And there's a third view. It's called the hypothetical view, where this warning is for, for actual genuine, spiritually alive to Christ, real Christians who cannot possibly lose their salvation. And so the writer, what he's doing, he's telling them what would happen, hypothetically, if you did forsake the Lord. So in other words, it's, it's like the writer saying to you, if you flap your arms and fly, then 
you'll lose your salvation. How many of you concerned about that? No, it's an impossibility. And that's why I think it makes no sense. Because if you actually, if that's what the writer means, and we're supposed to understand what he means, I got it now. How does that work as a warning? I know that I can't possibly do it, so why should I even feel like I ought to be warned? Because you're saying, this is written to all the church-going Christians, and you want me to theologically understand that by definition, therefore, I could never become that person, then how does that work as a warning? doesn't. I don't buy it. Alright. There's two more. And under this group I, I would say two positions that are held by those who hold a, a, an accurate biblical understanding of eternal security. Once a person is actually saved, in other words, they can never be unsaved. That's what I mean by correct understanding. Say it this way, that every single person who has by the Holy Spirit been regenerated, born again, and dwelt by the Spirit, that's why they have saving faith. They've been called to faith. To those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that faith justifies them. They have been declared before God as perfectly just, without sin, and perfectly positively righteous with someone else's righteousness. Jesus's. Those persons are the persons who are in the process of sanctification. That's the eternal security the Bible teaches. One little verse that we saw in this chapter earlier, look at verse 14 where he wrote, For by a single offering, Jesus' offering, He has done this. He has perfected for all time. Past tense. It's a perfect tense verb. Happened in the past with continuing ramifications. Jesus did this. He has perfected. Or I, I think this is his way of saying justified, declared righteous. He has perfected for all time. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Present tense in the Greek. Present, ongoing, continuous action. Those are the ones whom this is true of, who have been perfected by Jesus' single offering. That's the definition of a Christian, of those who have been perfected in God's sight. Present, ups and downs, ongoing, slow sanctification. All right, now, out of that, one view, and here's, here's why it's the difficulty. Let's just put it this way first. If that's true, is that you? 
You know you love him. You're being sanctified. You should, you should be secure in your faith like we opened this service this morning. Who should separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one or no thing. Okay. Uh, not at all. But now we read verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Okay. So, the fourth view then of those who hold an accurate view of eternal security. This was actually held by John Owen in the 1600s. Puritan, theologian, pastor, thinker, great theologian. And what Owen argued and others argue is that the pronoun he, see it there in verse 29, the he in that phrase by which he was sanctified does not refer to the apostate. It doesn't refer to the person trampling underfoot the Son of God but it refers to Christ. It's their argument. In other words, it would go something like this, if I just, to, to, to paraphrase it, what they're saying is this. You should read it this way. The, the, the person, this person, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, that is Christ, was sanctified. In other words, Jesus was sanctified, dedicated, set apart unto God as the eternal high priest following the arguments of the book of Hebrews. He did that by the blood of the covenant with which he offered himself. Sanctified. Okay. All right. That interpretation is grammatically possible in the text. And it's also theologically possible. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer? John 17, he speaks of sanctifying himself. Verse 19. And Father, for their sakes, same word too, hagiazo is the Greek word, it's the same word. For their sakes... I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So remember the basic idea of the word hagiazo or to sanctify uh, has different nuances in the New Testament in the way it's being used. Its basic meaning is to set something or someone apart unto a special use or purpose. So Jesus says, I'm setting myself apart, obviously, for laying down his life on the cross. So when he says, I sanctify myself, he clearly doesn't mean, that means I'm going to start working on my moral... <laughs> 
decisions in life and I'm going to become less sinful than I am in sanctified in that sense, which is the way that a lot of times we Christians do accurately use the term. He obviously doesn't mean it that way. So let, let me give one quote from, a, from, from a, a modern brother who, in his commentary, Noel Weeks, who holds this view, and so this is how he would say it to you. Quote, The whole point of the author has been to emphasize that Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of a high priest. There is an analogy between the Aaronic ordinances, Aaron's priesthood, and the sacrifice of Christ. So it is reasonable to suggest that as Aaron was consecrated by the blood of the sacrifice, like Exodus 29, so Jesus was consecrated as high priest through the offering of His own blood. Okay, that's the view. I don't think that's what He means. So, instead, what do I think? I think it refers... He was sanctified by that blood. What do you mean sanctified? It refers to outward sanctification in the sense of being identified with God's people. It does not refer to a person's true heart condition before God by the Holy Spirit set apart or sanctified in that sense. In other words, this person is set apart or sanctified from the world in the sense that he or she has joined the church. They've been baptized. They take communion. They sit under the preaching of God's Word. They intellectually agree with it. But his or her heart has not been regenerated, transformed by God's saving grace. And often, when it shows up, like in our text, persons become these persons, like that, that happens down the road when the pressures of the world, the pressures of persecution, the temptations to go back into a sinful lifestyle, finally overcome them and they show their true colors by ultimately repudiating the gospel. Buy it yet? Let me show you why I say that. So go back to verse 26. We saw last week, and we concentrated a little bit more on it. These people are people who have that privilege. They've received full knowledge of the truth. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge, the epinosis, the full knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And remember the context here is not, what are you talking about? I still have a sinful nature and do sin. He's not saying that. He's saying after even again I'm preaching, the writer's preaching to them throughout this letter of Christ's sufficiency and that alone because of their temptation to go back to animal sacrifices and temple worship, which in his mind, he's saying that would be a repudiation of Christ. It is his blood and his blood alone. Don't go there. That would be to go on deliberately sinning. Don't do it. So these people who have trampled underfoot the Son of God, they're going to be the objects of God's wrath. They are the people who, here in this text, know cognizantly. They know the truth of the gospel. They would be those who are deliberately sinning as they walk away from Christ in the face of intellectually seeing the truth. And in this passage, these people are described as part of God's people. To describe what is happening in God's vengeance, the writer says in verse 30, and he grabs that quote and he quotes it from Deuteronomy, the Lord will judge His people. Now, I think this this seems to mean that the writer sees the visible church on earth, the external church, which is different than the true immaterial in the spiritual realm, the bride of Christ, the church for all time. He seems to see the external church the way he saw the Old Testament people of God as a mixed group. So in other words, some of, many of God's people, in this sense, will be saved. Some from among God's people will be lost. The the, the way Paul understood the congregation in the Old Testament of Israel, in Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I think this is the way the writer's thinking. Externally, he calls the visible church the people of God. But he knows, Jesus taught it very well, that the visible church and the true church of God's elect or born-again people are not equivalent in this world. They're not the same. There will always be false conversions. There will always be weeds among the wheat. That's how Jesus said it. And he says, don't go try to rip up all the weeds right now. You're going to whip up wheat with it. Just wait to the end. 
but that's how it works. And as this text shows, many of these within God's people, the church, will show their true colors and become visible as they deliberately go on sinning by trampling underfoot the Son of God and forsaking His body. That's what I think His point is. Just read verse 25 to 26 together and feel His flow. By not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more. This is, remember the whole, to do what? To, to hold fast the hope is the whole point. Hold it fast. Don't let it go that you become one of these. Don't be that person. Hold it fast by not neglecting to meet together is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near for Here's, here's a really good reason to do that, he says. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, so now, let's go back to the word hagiazo, to sanctify. They were sanctified. That word... It does not at all always refer in the New Testament to the internal working of the Holy Spirit in the Christian or the purifying or making you more holy or the way Paul would say it, conforming you to the image of Christ. It does not necessarily mean that when it's used in the New Testament. Context will tell you. It has a much broader meaning this word itself within the book of Hebrews and generally throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you a taste. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Paul, exact same word, hagiazo, Paul writes, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Can't be more clear there. He just said this person who is not a Christian is sanctified in some sense, set apart. Obviously because of the blessing that there's a Christian he sleeps with. Or she. That is a big blessing in your life as much as it is that you're in a church with Christians sanctified what a blessing Je Jesus used it this way in Matthew 23 you fools and blind men which is more important the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold oh, it didn't make the gold more holy uh, uh, morally it's an impossibility. It's a, it's a setting it apart. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5. For everything created by God is good, marriage and food, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received 
with gratitude, for it, the food, is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. It's set apart in a different way. It's not talking about the food itself is not becoming more morally holy. Okay, now, in chapter 9, verse 13 of the book of Hebrews, we've already seen him use it in that kind of a way. Where he's not talking about the Holy Spirit sanctifying a believer, but referring to some kind of outward setting apart or sanctifying. Where he said, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh outwardly, which it does, that's his point. So when the writer says in verse 29, this person has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. I, I clearly think that contextually it doesn't refer to the elect, to born-again people, to those who are objectively in God's sight justified by their saving faith. It's referring to those who along with them in the visible church. He says, for how much more would they have deserved who? The, the ones from among that group of people on earth. He's referring to the mixed group. It's called the church in the world that meets in all kinds of assemblies and congregations around the world. But, but in a sense, he says, in other words, all of that group is deemed, in a sense, to be set apart, sanctified as the visible church in the world. Now, if he meant, no, 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 they were sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by new birth and being worked upon, and that's what he meant here, and then they end up lost, he would be contradicting what he's clearly, this writer's clearly already said back in chapter 3, verse 14. You read it slowly again. For, he says, we have become partakers Perfect tense. Past. It's true. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. Firm until the end. Something is true of you that has already transpired. And it shows by your ongoing and continuing to the end of your life, holding fast the hope of the gospel. 
Or let me just put a little twist on that with, with the author's words from elsewhere. For we have become partakers of Christ if we don't become those who spurn and trample underfoot the Son of God. Because if you are a partaker of Christ, you will never do that. You can't. See, it means that if we do not hold fast to the end, well then, that person had not become a partaker of Christ. Failure to persevere in faith to the end is not a sign of losing your salvation. It's a sign of never having been saved in the first place. Never having been a partaker of Christ. As he says in chapter 10, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time. Those who are presently and ongoingly in the process of being sanctified. In other words, there is a genuine, spiritual, internal sanctification that is sure evidence of being eternally perfected in God's sight. He's perfected for all time, not just for a few years, and then you lose your standing with God and you're no longer justified. God's justifying His perfecting work on behalf of all whom Christ is saving is not temporary. And the evidence that we've been justified, is that me? Do you love Him? Are you battling your sin? In other words, is the Holy Spirit working in you? Are you being sanctified? And it can get rough. Huh. And therefore, the, the, the term sanctification in verse 29 He's using it in a different way than he used it in verse 14 of the same chapter. In verse 14, it proves that sanctification going on in your life proves I've been justified. I'm one of those eternally perfected by Christ. But then the words, quote, by which this apostate was sanctified, that refers to the religious separation, the outward setting apart that happens when a person becomes a part of the external, visible church in this world. Am I making sense? Let me just show one more shot out and let... Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says it this way. The author of Hebrews knows that some may fall away, even though they assemble with the congregation of believers, and so share in this great privilege of coming before God. So he says not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The reason to encourage one another is the warning in verse 26. 
For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In such a context, it is appropriate to understand profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified to mean by which he was given the privilege of coming before God with the congregation of God's people. In this sense, the blood of Christ opened up a new way of access to God for the congregation. It sanctified them in a parallel to the Old Testament ceremonial sense. And this person, by associating with the congregation, was also sanctified in that sense. He or she had the privilege of coming before God in worship. End quote. All of that influence, and like I warned last week, one of the dangers of being raised in a church with Christian parents, take all the more heed, because all of that influence that you were blessed with, all of us here even this morning, it was purchased. In every church throughout the world today that is gathering, Jesus' blood is what caused that. In that sense, that sanctification, even for this lost person, that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Okay, so as you close, what does this have to do with us? I know this was unusual. You guys raised the question on Wednesday night. What does this have to do with us? Well, the warning is for the church, for the visible church. So I got a question. Are you part of the visible church? If so, you are to heed and be moved by the warning. That's all. Or the way Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. All of the church, all who are in the visible church, which we just said, it, it's a mixed group. But we're all to take seriously the scriptures. For instance, we're to take seriously what the writer said to us in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But instead... Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why is that important? Because we have truly become partakers of Christ 
if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. It is that right there, that ongoing activity in the believer's life that is at the heart of what? Christian sanctification, internal sanctification is at its core. And that process is your assurance. It's your assurance that you're not one of those persons. I examine myself. I hate my sin. I'm, I'm walking with Him. I cry out to Him every day. I bank everything. Not on me, but on the blood of Christ. I don't, I, don't, I don't seek, even in my sanctification, any righteousness of my own before God. But only the righteousness which comes from God is a gift. The righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, that's your assurance. I'm not one of those. Merely outwardly sanctified by being a churchgoer. No way. I'm not one of those to whom Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So what do we do? We do what the writer to the Hebrews has been saying throughout the book constantly. Hold fast. Draw near. Stop becoming dull of hearing. We go hard after God. Because as the writer said in chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your holy word, the work of your word and the work of your spirit that takes a happy disposition on one day or a downtrodden disposition the next to trust, to wait, and to know that you didn't spare your own son, but you sent him. You gave him up for all of us. And he has made us clean and perfect for all time before you. And thus nothing shall be capable or able to separate us from your love toward us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for that. Oh, fill us with your Spirit in this remaining time to the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. Let us stand.